Well, good morning. Chuck is uh, still on sabbatical, and uh, Stephen got his wife back from uh, Russia this week, so he was just too distracted to write a sermon. <laughs> sure, he was glad to get her back. No, in all seriousness, Chuck uh, scheduled me a long time ago just to give Stephen a break, uh, just as Chuck would want a break every now and then from preaching. Um, and I'm happy, of course, to be in the saddle this morning. I know that uh, some of you also had... Uh, uh, had my wife accompany you last night and heard her testimony. I was glad that she was able to be with you. Um, I'm glad for this opportunity, but as I was tracking Stephen's progression through the book of Acts, I noticed that I was going to be up to bat right when he got to Stephen's speech in Acts 7, which I believe Stephen said was a really long speech and somewhat confounding. So, because um, I didn't want to rob Stephen of any. Uh, glory or any thunder, and because what's more apropos than Stephen preaching on Stephen's speech, I decided I just wanted to uh, go back, go back and review and give an overview of the book of Acts, and Stephen was gracious to oblige me. Uh, I actually preached through the book of Acts uh, many years ago, about 10 years ago, and it does take a long time. There's 28 chapters there. It's very lengthy. Um, it's a fascinating book written for the benefit of the church, for those whom God loves. In fact, though Luke says that he wrote this second volume just as he did his first volume for someone named Theophilus, or however you pronounce his name. Uh, by the way, can you imagine writing such a massive work, such a well-researched work for just one person? Um, it's actually for anyone who loves God, or rather is loved by God. That is, after all, what Theophilus means. Theophilus, loved by God. And so this is a beautiful treasure of testimony for anyone that God has called his own. And yet, though there's a richness here for the church, there are many things to be gleaned, I think it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. Uh, I'm told I'm a little old-fashioned and sometimes employ uh, sayings that uh, don't always translate or that not everyone's familiar with. I don't know if you've heard that adage before, if you know, know what it means. Seeing the forest for the trees, it means we don't want to lose the big picture because of the particulars. Acts is long, and it's going to take us um, many weeks, many months to work through it, but it all hangs together, and it's meant to be understood as a whole. I think you could even say that the book of Acts is really about one thing, and the danger of undertaking the task of preaching through something as massive as this is that you can lose the forest for the trees. You know, when I was in, in high school, uh, the pastor of our church decided to take a, a year to preach the book of Revelation. And even though I was in high school, I thought that was pretty cool. But I have to confess that when he was done, I really didn't have any sense of what the entire book was all about, how it hung together. Um, I thought that was a shame. Don't get me wrong, I think that uh, Chuck and Stephen are doing a great job of pausing and showing us the structure and the progression of Acts. So if I can help by giving us a bird's eye view of the forest, I'll feel like I've just assisted in that effort. But then let's, let's go back to the beginning. And let me, let me pose a, a question as we do. If we had to summarize the whole, what is Acts all about? Actually, before we even get to that question, we might ask ourselves an even more basic or fundamental question. Why is it called Acts? I mean, whose Acts are, is it referring to? 
It's often um, referred to as Acts of the Apostles. That's not actually part of its official title. It really is just Acts, but um, that would be very sensible. Uh, These are the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus told his disciples that they would do even greater things than he did. Yeah, we marvel at that statement. Um, and, but this historical account recounts all of their awesome deeds. But then it could also be called acts of the Holy Spirit, right? The apostles are, after all, transformed from this band of timid and fearful disciples to courageous and powerful apostles only once that they are, only after they're clothed from power that comes from on high. And frequently throughout this narrative, we're told that through the apostles' preaching, the Holy Spirit falls upon people, just as Jesus had promised to send the helper who would take from Jesus and then apply it to the disciples. So that promise is being realized in this book. The Holy Spirit has come, and he is indeed acting. But there's one more actor that I think we should consider And it's Jesus himself. Luke begins this account by saying, In my first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. You see the implication of that. Jesus continues to do. He continues to teach. And so this is really volume two of the Acts of Jesus, Luke's gospel being the first. Jesus is active. These are his acts. But then that really only makes sense if if two other foundational truths uh, which Luke lays out for us in these 11 verses are established. In order for Jesus to continue to act, he first of all has to be alive. And then I would submit to you, just as important as that, he also has to be ascended. Um, I know those are very basic assertions. I think, though, they are worth taking a moment to reflect upon this morning. You know, in his, uh, in his work entitled New Testament History, F.F. Bruce says that in the closing years of British rule in India, some trouble was being caused in the Waziristan section by a self-stylized champion of Islam named Haji Mirza Ali Khan. Anybody ever heard of him? Yeah? Uh, I, I, I have not. <laughs> if, you're, if you've never heard of him, you're like me. Uh, Bruce continues, he was a holy man, And his devotees no doubt thought him a very important person indeed. If his followers had begun to propagate a cult in which he played a central part, if their mission had proved successful, if it had led to riots in Karachi and Delhi, if it had been carried to London and begun to cause trouble in the Indian and Pakistani communities of Britain, well then the name of Haji Mirza Ali Khan would have become familiar and ultimately found its way into historical writings. But such a process would require a little time. He goes on to say, similarly, in A.D. 30, the name and activity of Jesus of Nazareth would have meant no more to people living at the heart of the Roman world than Ali Khan meant to people in England. A religious leader who won a following by his claim to be a king, but who was conveniently executed, was no exceptional phenomena in the Palestine of those days. But when his followers, claiming that he had risen from the dead, began to proclaim him as a deliverer for whom the world was waiting, when their mission was met with astonishing success, when it was carried not only to Antioch and Alexandria, but to Rome itself and led to riots there, then the name of Jesus and of his followers, the Christians, became familiar at the heart of the Roman Empire. 
But this process required a little time. You see Bruce's point. It's that Ali Khan is dead and, and there's really no legacy of his following. And if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, he would have been just as forgotten as Ali Khan. And it doesn't really matter that his spirit or his teaching would live on. That's not the same transformative truth as Jesus having been raised from the dead. You know, if you were like me, two weeks ago, you uh, went home from worship on Sunday. When you got home, you saw the shocking news that Kobe Bryant and his daughter and several others in that helicopter had died in that crash. I later found out, by the way, that the crash happened on a hillside across the street uh, from um, a church that's pastored by a friend of mine, and it happened during their worship service. But it affected a whole city. Uh, Kobe Bryant, who's this L.A. icon, had his life cut short. And I, I prayed in the moment that that would be a wake-up call to our city. Um, no matter who you are, your life can end at any moment. Sometimes it, we need our attention grabbed by such a tragedy, but God can bring goodness out of that for us to recognize that our, hands are in the, our, our lives are in the hands of God. And yet I'm afraid that we're not really a culture who faces the reality, the, the finality, and the violence of death. We don't like to face that. What I mean to say is that almost immediately after the initial shock wore off, people were, of course, celebrating his life and saying pretty banal things in the midst of celebrating him. Of course, this is nothing new. I understand that people want to deny death and say comforting things. They always say things like, she'll always be with us, or he's not really gone if he lives on in our hearts. Even LeBron James, his last words of tribute to Kobe were what? Live on, brother. Again, I understand that. I get it. We want to affirm life after death. And, and as Christians, we should affirm life after death, but only because of our faith. Christians should encourage one another with the news that there's life in the interim between death and the resurrection, but only because of Christ's victory over the grave. Those who die in the Lord, we're told, are preserved. It's a mystery of sorts, but we're told that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Thus we can say rest in peace. But even our preservation, that's not the same thing as Christ's resurrection or ours. His resurrection is a precursor to our ultimate hope, which is attaining to a resurrection from the dead. Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive. After suffering by many proofs, appearing to his disciples over a 40-day period. You see, Jesus is alive, really bodily alive. I think we can even strip his resurrection of its significance by saying, well, yeah, okay, but he, he now has a spiritual body. Yes, it's true that he was raised with a glorified body, and yet that body is still a real body. That, marks, that, that bears the marks of his suffering. Remember that he ate with his disciples after the resurrection. When they thought that they had seen a phantom, he, he said, does a, does a ghost have flesh and bone as you see I have? He showed them his hands and his feet. He even told Doubting Thomas to put his hand in his side where he had been pierced. We sang a song this morning, crown him with many 
crowns that talked about his, the, the marks of his suffering that he still bears. There's another song we sing from time to time called Arise, My Soul, Arise. And one of the verses says, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. You, do you believe that Jesus still bears those wounds even now? I do. Um, do you know where Jesus bears those wounds for you? Not in his body, but where? Temporally. I believe in heaven at the right hand of God. He sits there even now interceding for us, his people. He shows the Father the extent to which he paid for our sins. And, of course, God is satisfied with that sacrifice. Which brings me to the other foundational truth that Luke emphasizes in this prologue. Jesus is alive, but he's also ascended. Luke says that he was taken up. He details that in verse 9 where he says that he was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight and into heaven. You see, here Jesus is being glorified and even coronated, being crowned as we sung to him, crown him with many crowns. This, this is the fulfillment of the, the vision that was given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, given first to the king, but then Daniel interpreted it. Daniel was given a, a glimpse of the future, that other great kingdoms would come and go, but there would eventually come one like a son of man, which is, of course, Jesus' favorite self-designation. He would come with the clouds of heaven and be presented before the ancient of days, and to him would be given dominion, a kingdom where all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion would be an everlasting kingdom, which would never be destroyed. See, that, that picture is being fulfilled in this ascension into heaven. Jesus here takes his seat of power that God the Father has assigned to him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David had prophesied about the Lord. If we want to appreciate and understand Acts as a whole, we have to apprehend these truths that, first of all, Jesus is alive. It's not just his spirit that lives on. His legacy isn't just preserved in our memories. He is truly bodily resurrected. But then also he's ascended to the right hand of God where he's ruling even now. These truths become the foundation for appreciating that Jesus is active and Again, indeed, these are the acts of Jesus that we're looking at. Well, that was really just kind of the first half of what I want to convey this morning. But then, secondly, if we want to maintain a big picture in Acts, how can we summarize the activity of Christ? What is the risen and ascended Jesus actively doing? Well, Jesus may be about many things, but I'm, I'm asking, what is the, the forest for the trees? I think that we can summarize the book of Acts by saying that Jesus is actively building a kingdom. This, of course, was his goal and mission all along. It's just that this mission might be somewhat obscured by the fact that he came to die in order to accomplish that goal. We focus on the cross, and rightly so, because in the cross our sin is atoned for, we're forgiven. And again, in his first volume, Luke, or any of the other gospel writers for that matter, they portray Jesus as this humble man who avoided the crowds and uh, resisted them anointing him as their king. 
So in the Rome of his day, Jesus would have died in relative obscurity, much like Ali Khan. But if we have eyes to see it, there are hints in the Gospels that Jesus is building something great and massive and indestructible. There are demonstrations first of his power, of his actions, his signs and wonders that he performs that testify to his authority. But then also there are his words that he speaks. For instance, in Matthew 16, after Peter makes a very good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus then says to him, blessed are you, Simon. And I tell you that you're Peter and on this Petros, whether that's Peter himself or whether that's the disciples, or whether that's the rock across from Jerusalem. But he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he then bestows upon Peter and presumably the other disciples the keys of the kingdom that he's building. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, for years I read that wrong. I always read it to mean, I'll build my church and even hell will not be able to destroy it. That sounds similar, right? By the way, I probably read it that way because I was culturally conditioned to do so. We look around us and we think that the world is kind of going to hell in a handbasket, right? That society's depravity is worsening and the church is, well, it's fairly impotent. It does what it can, but... At least we can hold on to Christ's promise that hell won't ultimately overcome the church. But that is not at all what Jesus promised here. He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In in that day, gates were a part of a city's defense, even if they were the most vulnerable point of that defense. Cities built walls, of course, um, in order to keep enemies and invaders out, but you had to have gates so that your citizens could could come and go so they could enter and exit a city. And Jesus says, I'm building my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against the advance of my church. You see, the church is the one advancing into the darkness, into the domain of hell, reclaiming what is rightfully Christ. Gates are just defensive. But Jesus is knocking down doors and he's coming in. Jesus is forcefully building his kingdom, sovereignly. At the end of Matthew, Jesus declares that all authority in heaven and where else on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. By the way, who says that? You know, people who just want to make Jesus into a good example or a good teacher, I think they really need to grapple with that statement because a good person does not make those claims to authority. Jesus wants his followers to make disciples of all nations, but that's based upon the fact that the world is his. There's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine! That's mine! That's not my statement. That's Abraham Kuyper's. And of course, we're given a map for the progress of this kingdom being built through the guarantee that Christ issues in this prologue. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
As uh, Stephen had mentioned last week, we're on the verge of moving from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. But you know what? This progress would not even even taken place by the will or the strength of man. But the risen Christ is orchestrating his plan, even through the persecution and scattering of the church, which we're going to see very soon. As we track through this book of Acts, we're going to see Jesus accomplish his promise to build a kingdom that is really turning the world upside down. Well, hopefully I've provided a little review, a little overview, which gives us a framework or lens by which we can read and appreciate Acts in the weeks to come. And though I, I recognize I've used up most of my time, I, I, uh, I still want to say a few words regarding application because I think that there are some recurring themes in Acts that call us to action. Uh, the first application is really more of a mindset, but I do think it will influence our actions It's the appreciation uh, that Christ's promise to his apostles has been realized. He promised them, first of all, the Holy Spirit, who did come with power. And he said that they would be his witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the earth. And I want to suggest to you that that promise has been completed. I know that uh, some could object that Rome, where we're going to end in Acts, sorry, spoiler alert there, Acts 28 ends with Paul in Rome. That's that's hardly the end of the earth. I mean, there are still completely unreached civilizations and tribes in the Western Hemisphere at this point in time. No apostle has yet um, traveled to the far reaches of China or deep into Africa, although they were spreading quickly. But that hadn't been accomplished when Acts comes to a close. But, but what do we see? We, we see apostles who probably thought they were just going to a diaspora, just to a scattering of the Jews, who were actually reaching the nations themselves. An account that begins in Jerusalem with huddled disciples who were afraid for their lives ends in Rome with Paul preaching boldly for two years there with the intention of traveling to Spain. It's no accident, I think, that Luke ends his narrative with Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God in Rome because it is the most important city. It's the center of the universe for all practical purposes. Again, I get that someone could say that the gospel has not been preached to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I I have met those who believe, they're good people, that believe that we must define all the people groups in the world and until they are each reached, Jesus will not come back. And there are others who are anticipating a, a, a re-inclusion, a re-grafting of ethnic Israel into the new covenant prior to the culmination of history. And finally, others are looking for the Antichrist to present himself and expect a great tribulation and a millennium to take place before Christ will return, but you know he can't come back yet. These are all hermeneutical and exegetical matters that not everyone in the church is going to agree upon. That's understood. But I want you to know there are many, many Christians, and I'm among them, who believe that nothing is left that needs fulfilling prior to Christ's return. God's timing is mysterious, but it's perfect. Even the sun doesn't know the day or the hour. He says that it'll come like a thief in the night, that he will come like a thief in the night. But I believe that could be today. Today. 
or tomorrow. Or it could be a thousand years from now. And a thousand years are like a day to the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. No matter your personal conviction regarding what is left undone, I, I do think that there should be some appreciation of the fulfillment of Christ's promises. Right? I, I, I don't anticipate the entire world being Christianized, but the church is truly global. So Jesus' promises have been realized. What started out as a sect of Judaism known as the Way has become a kingdom of nations under the banner of our Lord Jesus. And even as divided as we are, we're really one. That's what Jesus says we are. We are one, he declares. Do, do you appreciate? We're going to be given the opportunity after this message to sing to the Lord. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Indeed, they are. However, even if his promises have been completed... I think the proclamation must continue. In the same place where Paul tells us that a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day to the Lord, he adds, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise. Rather, he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. The proclamation must continue because it pleases the Lord to gather other sheep into his pen as long as the day is called today. You know, here's an increasingly dirty word. Uh, not just in the world, but in the, the church itself, evangelism. I don't use that word like we used to, right? It sounds a little old-fashioned, doesn't it? Haven't we gotten kind of past proselytizing others? I certainly hope not. I think we need to proclaim the good news to people who are perishing, and of course we will only proclaim it if we believe they are perishing. You know, even some... Atheists understand this. You have an if you have an opportunity this afternoon, um, YouTube Penn Gillette Evangelism. I don't know if you know who Penn Gillette is. Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller is this famous Las Vegas magician who's also a devout atheist. And he tells a story in this short YouTube video of a, of, of a fan who came up to him and handed him a Gideon Bible with some inscriptions in it, some verses that he wanted him to take a look at. And he says he was not offended because he understands that though he thinks Christians are deluded, we're horrified by the prospect of people going to hell. He says, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell and you think it's just not worth telling them that because it could make things socially awkward, he says, well, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize them. The fact that Jesus has fulfilled his promise doesn't mean our proclamation should cease. And by the way, we get to do that proclamation with great authority because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the one whose name we are proclaiming. Our posture should not be that of the disciples who were caught gazing into heaven, just waiting for Jesus to come back. There's still work to be done in the here and now. And then finally, I know I've spent a good deal of time this morning talking about the triumph of the risen Jesus and the, the kingdom that he's sovereignly building from heaven. But we must not be tempted to think that that kingdom will be established on our terms or in our way. 
When we talk about power and authority, I think it's natural to want to share in that glory now. But the path of the cross is the way to glory. Jesus taught that. Jesus showed us that. Remember that on the very heels of Christ's promise to Peter that he would build his kingdom and the gates of hell would not be able to withstand its advance. He then immediately explained to his disciples that he was going up to to Jerusalem to be rejected by the powers that be, by the rulers, to suffer and ultimately to be crucified. And Peter, of course, rebuked Jesus saying, no, you, you got it all wrong. This will never happen to you. And I think he was saying that out of the sense of like, it's not going to happen to us. And we're with you. Remember Christ's response to him? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. The path to glory is the path of the cross. Acts shows us this over and over. He calls us to walk in that path. Acts 14.22 says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That was true for them. I think it's going to be true for us as well. You know, we're more like the disciples than we care to admit. They had their own agenda. Remember what they said to him? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus has a much more majestic plan to include the nations, but he tells us it's, it's not your business. It's not for you to know the, the, the times and seasons and such appointed by the Father. You be patient. Jesus also shows us the path to glory. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, which is established in my name. Drink from it, all of you. And as long as we eat this bread and we're drinking this cup together, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes in glory. The cup of, of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Meaning, if we have died with him, then we will live with him. That's a trustworthy saying. If we have died with him, we will live with him. Well, may the risen Christ feed us by his flesh and strengthen us for the journey ahead. ahead, And may we serve him by feasting upon him by faith. Let's pray together.